You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow shower heads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. As you can see on screen here, for those of you watching, I've got three guests with me. We are going to talk about the Flint lead crisis, specifically about the process of replacing lead lines and how that's gone from a technical standpoint, from a community outreach standpoint. Very excited to have these three folks who've uh, been very involved in, in Flint. I have Ben Pauly. He is assistant professor of social science at Kettering University. Ben, so glad you're on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jared Webb, chief data scientist with Blue Conduit. Jared, thanks for joining. My pleasure. And Mona Monroe Eunice, Executive Director of the Environmental Transformation Movement of Flint. Mona, happy to have you as well. Thank you. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Great. Well, um, I really am looking forward to digging into this and hearing about the experiences you all had and the lessons learned when it comes to actually getting those lead lines out of the ground and better protecting the residents of Flint by doing that. Uh, I know that it's been a crazy journey for you all. Um, for a long time, a lot of emotions involved, a lot of challenges, a lot of frustrations. So I just, I appreciate uh, what you all have been through. I uh, want to acknowledge that for sure. Could we talk about when this process started of replacing lead lines, what were the, what were the challenges that were, that were known from the, the start and, and that were discovered along the way? 
Uh, yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll take that. And uh, Ben and Mona, please chime in when I forget to mention something important. Um, so I think the, the very first challenge, the first challenge before anything was knowing which houses had lead pipes and which ones did not. And this is something that before I became involved, I never, I mean, I didn't really know what a water service line was before I started working in Flint. Um, but, and much less that people might not know like where they are or what they're made out of. Um, so we were, I was working at the University of Michigan at the time uh, and we found out that, uh, you know, the people working in Flint were running into trouble not knowing about which houses had lead pipes and which ones had copper pipes. Uh, and so this is the, the primary challenge that Flint had an amount of funding to replace service lines, but they didn't have enough to go to every single house. And it certainly isn't a good look if you spend all of your time digging up copper pipes and then filling the hole back in again. Uh, that's not that's not addressing the problem, and it's uh, it's really going to uh, cause you know further emotional damage uh, to the population if they see that their the progress isn't being made. So I think that was the first the first real issue. Flint had when they reached out to us. I think they had no records period of which houses had lead pipes and which ones didn't. And eventually, I don't know the whole story behind this, but someone found some hand-drawn maps in a basement hmm. in a city building somewhere in a locked cabinet that had been forgotten. It was dusty, and uh, they pulled these out. And they, 40,000 index cards. with Yeah, there were index cards, and there were these, these maps. They were actually kind of beautiful how, how they, were, they were drawn by, you know, craftsmen. <laughs> um, but all this information was digitized by a team of undergrads uh, head by Dr. Kaufman at the University of Michigan Flint. Uh, and that was like the first draft of saying, okay, this is where we think there might be lead, this is where they might not be. And as this process bore itself out, it actually turned up being that those records were wrong about as often as they were right. Mm. And so even though uh, we had these things saying, well, this house, this this map from who knows when says there's a lead pipe that we dig it up. It's actually copper or vice versa. They go dig up a, a, a location and it says copper on these maps and it's actually a lead pipe. And so, so this created kind of this information crisis in Flint that we had to work on on solving first. Uh, and that's, that's where we at the I mean, at the time university of Michigan came in, we, we were data scientists, but we had no experience we weren't civil engineers. We certainly didn't have any of this ex, uh, experience that like Ben and Mona have dealing with the communities of Flint. But we uh, took the information that was available, including those records that were wrong, and turned them into uh, a data science pipeline, a machine learning model that could predict which houses had lead pipes and which ones had copper pipes. So that you're not spending time digging holes uh, that you don't have to dig, shutting down streets you don't have to shut down, and wasting money digging where, where you shouldn't be digging. And uh, these models eventually became highly accurate. And at first we were uh, using them with, uh, with the city and, and cooperating. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, eventually we wanted to kind of figure out how we can work more with the community. And I don't know if Ben or, or Mona, if there's anything you want to add into this point. Like we, we built the model, we made some predictions, um, 
and you know we kind of succeeded as academics but there was like a, a uh, we succeeded as like the nerds, I guess, but there's like a, there's a human side, uh, a community side to this that, uh, we were not really super well equipped to, to deal with. And I think that's where, where Ben and Mona come in. Yeah. I just wanted to ask Jared though. So yeah. the, the reason this model worked is because you guys were able to see what types of lines were prevalent in a certain area and then the model could predict well this this neighborhood or this street probably has this based on what else is around there yeah yeah that's a great question so what what is the input to the model right and we took any information we could find out about the houses and the and the building stock in flint uh we we took uh, like property tax records we looked at where they are located within the city. Like uh, we looked at even things that you might not think of, like the nearest fire hydrants type. This Flint has different fire hydrants types that got put in at different times of uh, at different times in its history. As infrastructure got built out, different kinds of fire hydrants got put in, and it turns out that looking at the nearest fire hydrant type for each house was helpful for predicting this. And the other thing, I got to really credit the city or well, at least the people we were working with, uh, we really stressed from the beginning how important it was to take like a to take a random sample of the homes in Flint and say, we don't want to just train models on houses in this spot. We want to take a random sample of all the houses in Flint. Let's go look at the pipes at these, you know, pick, we'll say 200 houses and have that be representative of the whole city so that we're not just prioritizing where the best records are. If we prioritize where the best records are, you run into all sorts of equity and bias issues. Bias in the statistical sense and then bias in the, uh, in the more uh, uh, vernacular sense where people say that, that algorithms can be biased towards certain populations. So we stressed that from the beginning to get these random samples to train our models. And the city acceded to that. They, uh, General Michael McDaniel, who was kind of heading the process at the time, uh, got it and he went out and he did it and he we tr you were able to use those samples to train these models uh, and and those models i'm rather those samples we we connected to these things i mentioned earlier these features about the houses and and the housing stock and and anything we could get our hands and we shoved it into the model to see what the model could figure out yeah yeah Awesome. Uh, I'd love to hear uh, any any other perspective on challenges in in the lead line replacement that were kind of you know as this effort was getting underway that were apparent uh, that were going to have to be overcome to to be successful. Well, I I could uh, speak a little bit about that. So you know, in order to um, the interpretation of of the law in Flint was that in order to uh, change a lead line or even scope to see what the lead line was composed of, um, the property owner would have to give permission. And so one of the, uh, alongside the the data side and, and the, the science side that, that was driving this work was an effort going door to door. I mean, the and Flint's contractors by and large were doing this, especially at the beginning. Um, going door to door, starting with the neighborhoods where they wanted to do the lead line rep replacement first and trying to get people's permission. And there were a whole lot of community questions and concerns about this. Um, 
for a lot of people, I think those got resolved and people were happy to have the lead line, uh, line scoped and replaced and other people still have reservations because the entity carrying out this work, even though it was done by contractors, um, it's not, you know, it was one that we've had to re we're rebuilding trust with. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and even, you know, to the extent that the state or other actors were trying to support this work, again, there's a trust factor involved. So, it, you know, that is part of why I think it became very important for organizations like the Healthy Flint Research Coordinating Center, um, grassroots organizations, Flint Neighborhoods United, um, neighborhood level groups to really be talking with neighbors, explaining the process, getting um, knowledgeable people about the process in front of residents to have their questions answered proactively. And, um, and there was also an effort, there was this whole, there's this whole, uh, organization that formed, um, called, uh, I think it was fact, was it fact? That's oh Well, it was, yeah. it, I'm just thinking of, um, it was the Flint recovery group and then, um, Flint cares, I'm sorry, Flint okay. cares. And, um, and within that, there was a communications work group that formed in order to make sure that the information getting out to the community was vetted, accurate, accessible, multilingual, um, uh, accessible for the deaf and hard of hearing community, making sure basically nobody was was going to be missed because especially at the start of the crisis, there were populations in Flint that just were not getting information, um, were not being were not being listened to. And so um and also just, you know, how uh, it, the importance of having accurate information in order to make healthy decisions for yourself and your family. So um, there was an effort within that group, and I, I participated in the communications work group, to make sure that any materials that the contractors were giving out to residents were um, were vetted through this group, but also that there was, we talked about creating a script. I think we'd actually mocked up a script for them because if you're, if you're, um, if you're used to doing pipe replacement, but you're not used to talking to people about how to, what that means for them, what is the service line, right? There's a language barrier. What is, what is it? We had become many scientists, you know, yeah. and not really in a way, right? Like, <laughs> sure, sure understand water system lingo in order to keep up with the information. And so, um, so that is some of the grassroots work and, um, community organization work that came to, you know, people coming together to make sure that this was going to roll out to the community as efficiently, as effectively as possible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. If, if I can just add one, one more quick thing to that, I mean, yeah, so there's, there's a prob problem of data where, where the lead lines are to begin with. But then even if you know where the lead lines are, you've still got some decisions to make about how to go about replacing them, who you're going to prioritize. I, so I, I'm glad you're talking about that because I wanted to hear also, I mean, I think we heard some good stuff uh, from Jared about the technical challenges and, and from Mona about the outreach. I'm, I was curious, what was, what was the overall approach? What was the thinking of like, okay, here's how we're going to tackle this strategically? Yeah. So, I mean, back in 2016, when the service line replacement process started getting underway and, and when I personally became involved in the response to the crisis, you know, I had uh, a colleague, I have a colleague at, at Kettering, uh, Dr. Laura Sullivan, who was really interested in trying to put together a kind of resident advisory board that would be helping to make exactly these kinds of de decisions about which homes to prioritize. And her thinking was that it could be the 
community basically deciding um, what principles should inform those priorities. So let's say you've got homes where you have especially vulnerable residents, like say you have young children. Um, might it be the case that we could prioritize those homes, right? Uh, so there are any number of considerations that might have factored into that. But, you know, we really never had a group like that that came together. You know, instead we had, had people on the city side and people who were involved with this uh, group that was put together by the, the governor at that time, Rick Snyder, to oversee the recovery effort, who were more or less making those kinds of decisions on behalf of the community. And there were some great people who were involved in that effort who I think were trying their best to do this efficiently and, and well and with respect for, for residents. But, um, you know, one of the things you, you find is that sometimes people on the technical official side, even if they're trying to do good work, right, their perspectives and their considerations and priorities don't always match up with those of people on the ground. And so, you know, one of the things that we saw starting to happen with that pipe replacement um, process was a, was a kind of tug of war between people who were kind of trying to do it as efficiently as possible and people who were kind of trying to direct resources towards particular parts of, of the city. And so, you know, if you can imagine what this looked like from a resident perspective, we had some parts of the city that, you know, weren't at the top of the priority list at that time, who were looking around and seeing other people get their pipes replaced and saying, well, wait a minute, what, what about us over here? And I don't think that everybody really understood how those determinations were being made. And that was part of the problem from, from the beginning. So that generated mistrust, that generated discontent, that generated fears that there were going to be people and or even whole parts of the city that kind of fell through the cracks or were pushed all the way down to the bottom of the queue. And so, um, you know, to some extent, it became a political issue because I think from the perspective of the administration at that time you know we have a ward-based system of city government in Flint right so we have uh, council members who represent different wards of the city and you know obviously they're supposed to be thinking about what's good for the city as a whole but on the other hand they're getting elected by people in particular parts of the city and they need to be able to show their constituents that they're taking their concerns seriously and so I think to some extent that helps helped to, to kind of spread the um, replacements around, especially in the year 2018, um, where things were done very inefficiently. Um, because again, we had this kind of conflict between these sort of, you know, you could call them political rationales or or just rationales that are coming out of the community to some extent with the kind of technical efficiency considerations. And, and so that's a kind of balance that I think, you know, is going to have to be struck in any community that is doing this work. And there's, there's no, you know, one right objective answer to where you draw that line between those priorities. But um, it is important that people feel like their voices are being heard when those determinations are being made. Did it settle in at some point to, uh, you know, a path forward, an approach that then hit a rhythm and momentum could get behind it, you know, like it, it <laughs> did it come to that or, or did it just kind of evolve throughout the whole process of, of what the, the strategy was? I would say in, in fits and starts, like there, there were, there's lawsuits kind of thrown into the mix here where the NRDC, uh, on behalf of city residents, uh, you know, sued the city and um, 
because they wanted to make sure that the resources were being used to actually help the residents to get the he- to get the let out. Uh, for a time, the city was using those resources well, but then uh, Ben mentioned in 2018 there was some some issues with efficiency. Uh, the city brought in some other people to manage the program. They said, "Good job, guys! You did great to getting getting us started. We'll take it from here." And uh, they. When they took it from there, they they kind of abandoned the the approach that we had taken in favor of some other approach uh, that I won't I can't really comment on precisely. But the hit rate for finding lead in 2018 plummeted from you know when we were seeing in 2016 2017 you know seven out of ten eight out of ten houses that they were digging up were were finding lead and. And at scale, too. We were doing a lot of houses. Um, we were using the model as you know, an input for deciding where to go, but not certainly not the only thing that, uh, that we cared about. And in 2018, when these other people got brought on to, to manage the program, the hit rate went down to like 1 in 10, maybe 1 in 20 in a lot of the cases. Uh, they were digging holes in all the wrong places. Mm. Uh, they were digging them up, filling them in again, and just like, and then moving on. And this caused the NRDC to pursue further legal action and, uh, in 2018. And then in 2019, a judge obligated the, the city to uh, start using the model again to guide replacements as an input. And the hit rate went back up to, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the time you were finding lead. And so, I was going to uh, ask. I was going to ask how uh, the use of technology and data, you know, changed during the process, and you just kind of spelled it out. People went away yeah. from it in a way, and and that led to a lot of shortcomings in in like finding lines and uh, very inefficient. And then when they went back to really relying using tech and data, um, it helped. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I would say. That's right. That's right. We were we were able to return to this regime where we were using data driven decision making, and the hit rate went back up. The city was using its resources to replace lead pipes, not to dig holes, hmm. right? And uh, and that and I see that as a, as a, as a success. One other side of that is, uh, and and maybe we can start. We can mention this a little bit. Is uh, we really wanted to make information which we were sharing mostly with policy people at the city or or decision makers we wanted to democratize that more we wanted to increase the transparency and the accountability that we could uh, we wanted to empower the residents to uh, be able to uh, act for themselves and and foment for for change if they needed it if they wanted to and so we we took this information that we had been passing back and forth with you know experts we'll say and uh we decided to to build a map that shared everything that we knew about the service line inventory in flint that anyone could access at any time and they could find out everything that we knew about it so it wasn't just something that we'll say that the experts knew about it's something that everyone knew about and we we worked with the community to try to develop that map so that it was not in data scientists speak Mm. But in community speak, and uh, you know, Brun and Mona both helped build that out so that it uh, it was like actually useful. 
other communities have service land maps, but they're usually not very good. (laughs) I have a hard time understanding what all the symbology means and and some of them. Uh, And I'm used to thinking statistically and (laughs) and algorithmically. And so we really wanted to make it really approachable to anyone in Flint. And and so now if you go to flintpipemap.org, you can see a snapshot of what the actual status, as far as anyone knows anywhere, of what the service line uh, situation is in Flint. Great. And a personal... Sorry, I just wanted, if I may just really quickly add to that, I'm, I'm so glad you're, you brought this into the conversation because it was a, it's really been a key technological tool for us um, to have that data at the parcel level, to have it in um, Spanish and English, to have it in um, a, a format also where you can, you can click a box and it goes to a colorblind version, um, th- you know, that you can um, get information about when your lead pipe was replaced, the date. What was what were the findings when they dug the hole, um, and then a and then uh, if you know if they haven't dug yet, then there's a probability scale of how likely it is that there would be lead. Um, and I just want to give kudos, you know give a shout out to Blue Conduit for one having the mentality of wanting to work with the community. It's it's a different uh, way of thinking about approaching work and about partnership, um, and and really having the um, really keeping the well-being of of people in mind um, and at the heart of the work and then continuing to work with us as we uh, needed to download the raw data to um, work with neighborhood groups to actually, you know, reach out to neighbors that still had letter high likelihood or um, had a high likelihood of lead uh, service line pipes um, and have not yet signed up for pipe replacement. So um, really our work with Blue Conduit was around, um, uh, well, I mean, I think we individually had helped to inform the development of the tool, but also um, later, more recently, we're really working to make sure the information got out to the community. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, well, I, I got to say, you should see what the map looked like before we got the community input. It was horrible. <laughs> but I knew it was bad. I didn't know how to fix it necessarily. Listening to the people like Mona and Ben uh, really made it so much better so it it goes both ways we're really glad to have worked with them well well that's a bit about how the technical approach maybe changed during during this process i want to hear more about how community outreach and engagement um evolved uh during during this many years of of lead line replacement yeah so i i mean i i think that uh, as i was saying before to some extent from a resident perspective people were just kind of watching the, the replacement process happen without necessarily knowing how people were making decisions on the technical side or where they were in the queue you know if anybody was ever going to get to their house and and you know as i was saying before that was causing some uncertainty and and some um distrust uh, especially after the city returned to using the algorithm in order to identify and prior- prioritize the lead lines, it started placing a lot of emphasis on residents opting in. Um, it, you know, it seems to be the case that early on they were going to a lot of, of homes and just kind of starting starting to dig, as I understand it. Um, but uh, in more recent years, there's really been a lot of stress on uh, individual homeowners actually, you know, signing 
signing a form and agreeing officially to have their yard dug up. And so uh, precisely because that became such a, such a priority, it became even more necessary to make sure that residents understood what was going on, you know, to some extent, like uh, understood how they fit into it, felt maybe even some ownership of that process. Like, you know, this, this was a, a process that they could be fully in, engaged in and, and even influenced to some extent. And so having the map available as a tool was really important just for starters so that people could you know, look up their address and see if they hadn't had a pipe replaced, you know, they could, they could maybe understand why that was. I mean, maybe it's because their line was confirmed to be copper, or maybe it was because they forgot to opt in, or maybe it's because, um, you know, the contractors just haven't got round to them yet. So that, that was uh, important first and foremost, just for informing individual homeowners about what was going on with their particular parcel. Uh, but, you know, just because you've created a map and put it up on the internet, um, especially in a place like Flint, where we do have a digital divide, you know, and, and sometimes it can be really hard to get the news out to the sort of extremities of the community. Uh, it's really important to do more than than just that. And, um, and that's where, you know, the, the the partnership aspect of all of this is so critical because you could be coming in from the outside with the best ideas and the best motivations and the most resources and all of that. But at some point, you're going to hit a wall if you don't have partners on the ground that have an understanding of the community from the inside out and can help you to make use of your skills and your resources in a way that actually reflects residents' needs and priorities. Priorities. And so um, I also want to give credit to Blue Conduit for having done that. And, and one of the things that I liked about the way they did it is that they didn't just go to one or two of their favorite people in Flint and treat their perspectives as, you know, representative of the community. I mean, they really tried to canvas a wide range of opinion about this stuff. And so even though some of us have collaborated with them more than others, again, they really tried to be inclusive about the way in which they, they did this work. But, you know, one of the reasons, part of the, the, the value added there, again, is that once we started to, to understand the, the, the problem more ourselves, like on the community side, we could think, okay, um, how how can we help to uh, get the word out and build trust in in the pipe replacements? And you know, if, if you don't have people who uh, have been on the ground for for years, you know, doing the kind of work that um, you know Mona and I do, then uh, it can be really difficult to get the information into the right channels and make sure that people are trusting it and, and acting upon it appropriately. And so um, we started thinking about all of the different relationships that we built up um, within the community, especially as part of the response to the water crisis. I mean, we have a lot of groups that in one way or another have been working on water in Flint over the years and who, um, you know, really appreciate having good data and good science to help them understand what's going on and where they should direct their efforts. And so we had some ideas about who needed to have a seat at that table as we talked about how to best get this, get the word out and make sure that nobody fell through the cracks. And so Mona 
Ramona mentioned already, you know, some of some of the groups that um, we we uh, reached out to, and uh, you know, it, it by no means was just us. You know, we were talking with Flint Neighborhoods United. We were talking with people from Flint Rising, and uh, you know, the Democracy Defense League, and we have some really great community activists here who um, have networks of their own. And and so, you know, that's that's one of the important things about being able to work with other groups within the community is like, you know, we know a lot of people in Flint, but we only know so many people. And, and you know, everybody has their own kind of circle of influence. And, and um, you know, this is one of the, these issues where I'm happy to say, like, we've had a, a lot of groups come together and really act in a concerted, unified way in, in order to address this problem. And so um, what that looked like is that we had, you know, people taking information contained in the map and then using it as a basis for outreach, mm -hmm. identifying those homes that had not yet had their surface lines replaced and, and trying to track people down. And, and I will tell you that um, one strategy that I was using in my neighborhood is I would compare the map against property records. And so if, if I saw a home that had been missed um, or just hadn't been gotten to yet, I could figure out who owned the property. And I was finding about 50% of the time, like that was somebody I either knew or they were a friend of a friend. Yeah. You know, I could find them through social media or something like that. And that's the, and so I could, you know, check up on them and try to get a sense of why they hadn't opted in, if they needed extra help. Um, you know, in some cases, I was finding that they had already done so. They were just, you know, on the waiting list, and um, as well as identifying situations that, you know, where where people really did need a little bit of extra intervention and and assistance in order to make this happen. And and so, um, that's the kind of thing that, again, I just you can't do if you're coming in from the outside without working with the community. And and again, it wasn't just me. It wasn't just Mona. It was any number of people who were part of that conversation who were trying to figure out, you know, does my neighbor need extra assistance with this? How can I check up on people and make sure that they're not falling through the cracks? Sure. Well, I, I love the point there that partnerships and collaboration just became essential to getting this work moving ahead and, and getting to the finish line. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, kind of for, for Blue Conduit, I guess, or all whoever wants to answer this, um, you know, your services, uh, using data and tech to help identify where lead lines are and, and get them replaced, you know, it's it's a business for you, right? You have a business to operate. It is now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I wasn't then, but yeah. Um, how do you factor in environmental justice and equity and kind of the financial landscape for these communities into your business model? Uh, of you know identifying replacing lead lines that's a really good question that's an excellent question and i will say that i don't have all the answers uh for that so but we're we're discovering them as as we do this uh we were just researchers when we started this <laughs> uh we didn't really think beyond the work that we were doing kind of as a pro bono service uh to the community because we wanted to help um as as the work progressed and we wrote a couple of papers about this, we, we just eventually discovered that there actually are lots of communities with the same, uh, same problem that Flint has, you know, Flint was 
you know, it's cliche, but they're, they're that canary in the coal mine uh, for many, many towns in, in the Midwest facing similar things. And so uh, as we, we can't, like, we need to be able to scale our efforts and be able to work in, in lots of places if we want to actually be able to deliver the service to lots of people in lots of towns. Um, as we do that, we, we are actively seeking partners to, we, I'll say this, we view this mission as, as a, like a social mission as, as a part of the DNA of the company. Very much, we want to be considering this at every step of the way. Uh, we uh, go out of our way to try to target underserved communities. And if we can't uh, find the resources within the community to, uh, to uh, fund this work or, or to make it happen, uh, we work actively with them to, say, write a really compelling grant proposal to the EPA saying, look, we can make an EPA an investment in this community really worth it. We can make it so much more efficient. We can identify the, the lead lines. We have experience now with, thanks to Ben and Mona, we have experience now with public health communication and explaining and making transparency a big part of this process. So we can say, we can make a really compelling case for like, say a grant saying, uh, you know, let's pay, let's, let's fund this effort to, uh, understand and make data-driven decisions so we're not just shooting in the dark here. Let's take these lessons learned and make it available to the community. We can, this map that we spent all this time building in Flint, we can build the same map in other places uh, so that residents can, and, and then we know how to connect with partners on the ground and incorporate those partners into, say, into, say the grant proposal to, uh, to fund them so they can go and do this work and deliver it to the community so that people don't get left behind. Uh, any, any, we, we, we don't want to, like, we could, I suppose, focus only on really large water systems where there are, uh, maybe larger contracts, uh, for the company, uh, as we, we don't want to say no to them, obviously, but, uh, as we do that, we want to make sure that we are putting a lot of effort into those small to medium sized cities that in lots of ways have been left behind and lots of ways don't have anything like the resources to, to attack this problem in a, in a data-driven way and make this service available to them however we can. Sure, um, sure. And it is, it's evolving. We're, we're figuring out how to do this. Uh, we've had some really great partnership with uh, the Rockefeller Foundation who has been able to fund some of this work so that we can go to these places that just you've never heard of before. <laughs> And talk to them, and uh, and help deliver this service to them, and, and make it available. This these high tech tools that you know, you go to like a, a city, you know, just pick one, like New York City. They've got a whole huge team of of data scientists working at the city already. They've got this really slick data operation, uh, and then these other cities that maybe have been passed over for development for a long time. Uh, a lot of their paper records are still on paper, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we want to help them leverage what they have to make it as efficient as possible to help as many people as possible. Sure. Yeah. And they're also probably the communities that haven't had the benefit of infrastructure dollars, mm -hmm. especially exactly. smaller communities, right? If you're having to fund it yourself through tax dollars, uh, it becomes a high cost for a small population to bear. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Ben, I remember you talking about uh, some of the implications of lead line replacements on the future of, of properties and, and real estate. Um, and could you kind of go over that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, it's important to understand that just because you're removing lead service lines within a community at homes where... First of all, you have inhabitants and you know people with active water accounts and people who have actively opted into that process. It doesn't mean that you're taking care of the problem, you know, comprehensively. So, uh, and so it's not just that some people have have opted out. It's you know, in in Flint, we have people living in homes, but who are not officially, you know, connected to to the grid. And so, those uh, houses are unfortunately falling through the cracks um, in this process. But then we also have the highest vacancy rate of any city in the whole United States. And so, we have many many homes that of course have their own service lines but you don't have anybody living in them right now to to opt in um, and so uh, you know those homes are, are also being missed and so you know j just because we've gotten the lead out of the ground in some places it doesn't mean that we're done with the legacy of lead uh, in, in Flint mm -hmm. and and so um, you know one of the things that we want to make sure of moving forward is that we have some kind of a backstop in place for people who find out later on that they're living in a house with a lead service line and so you know thankfully um, we now have a state law that requires communities to replace their lead lines progressively um, year by year. That This is what we didn't get in the uh, latest revision to the federal lead and copper rule. Um, we, we do have it in place at the state, state of Michigan. So in theory, even people who um, don't get their lead lines replaced now could be taken care of um, later on uh, as the city uh, um, you know tries to comply with with that law but but yeah just in, in terms of thinking about the the legacy of, of lead within the community I mean it's really important from a homeowner perspective to, to know that the home that you're living in that you're also in, investing in because as we all know I mean a home is a major investment for people that 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 home is not attached to the grid through a lead line and so you know when we've encountered Countered resistance from residents from time to time who you know don't think they need to get their line replaced or are uh, you know reluctant to participate in this process. That's been a major talking point. Is that no? This is this is in the interests of um, you know home, you as a homeowner moving forward. And you know in in Flint we already have a, a median home value that's you know somewhere in the. $25,000 range. I mean, our mm. proper property values here are extremely depressed to begin with. And so, um, you know, it's, it's important to recognize that as being part of the health of the community moving forward. Yeah. I wanted to, to ask kind of two last questions. So what's the status now as we sit here in, in January, 2021 of lead lines in Flint, you know, um, aside from the vacant property issue, you know, uh, occupied homes. What's what's it look like? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there have been, I want to say, around ten thousand lead pipes removed from Flint. Uh, out of the homes that have people living in them, active water accounts. Uh, that is a rather significant chunk. We're starting to 
kind of run out of places to look mm. for, for lead pipes. Uh, we're not done yet, uh, and there's certainly lots of homes that there has not been any sort of verification done. Uh, homes that maybe we thought were low probability, new construction, uh, things like this. Uh, yeah, that's where we're at. We're, we're still moving forward. The data still flows. Uh, every time there's an update we, we with new data, it comes to me and we update it uh, on the map so that it reflects the current state of, state of things in Flint. Um, and, uh, yeah, we we're, we're trying to work with all the stakeholders. We're trying to help, you know, finish off the legal, uh, the legal situation, uh, and making sure that the money gets the money allocated for this is still being used efficiently, but, uh, we've made a lot of progress. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that, that we're done. And as Ben was saying, this is going to be a, a long-term kind of thing. I don't know, Ben, if there's anything you want to add to that. I can tell you how many pipes have been replaced. Uh, <laughs> that's where my expertise ends. What, yeah. what, I mean, one, one aspect of this we haven't mentioned is that um, it's not just a matter of getting the pipes out of the ground. It's a matter of repairing the damage that you do when you take the pipes yeah. out. And that's that's not a small consideration for a lot of residents. In fact, that's been a reason why some that some people have cited for why they've opted out rather than opting in is that they imagine their yard being torn up and then never fixed. And I will tell you, as somebody who got his lead service line replaced in the fall of 2017, I am still waiting for the contractors to come back and reseed the area that they dug up. It's been a muddy mess ever since then. And so, uh, you know, people take a lot of pride in their lawns as they do in their in their homes and so um you know it's it's not just about getting pipes out of the ground it's 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 really about doing it the right way and we're we're still waiting um for that sort of thing to happen sure i'd like to add make that enough next <laughs> right Sorry, go ahead, oh, sorry. I just wanted to add, we, we also have some hopes. Um, I know that um, there there is an interest, I think, in local government to um, finish, complete this program. Um, you know, obviously we want to have as many homes um, made safer as quickly as possible. And um, these are state funds. And so, you know, you want to, um, you want to get them spent, right, uh, efficiently. We've been also pushing to make sure that the deadline isn't arbitrary for ending um, the opt-in period for the for um, opting into the lead pipe replacement program. And um, NRDC has helped to ensure through legal means that 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 um, that that is not an arbitrary date. That it's based on the completion of um, sufficient outreach to every home. But I will, I just want to add, we do have some hopes tonight and I want to share them because I think it's helpful for other cities who are maybe at the beginning of this process to be mm. planning ahead and being proactive and learning from what we've gone through in Flint, um, not only from the importance of partnerships and the importance of having, um, supporting and really um, empowering and enabling community members to understand the science and, and the scientists to understand community and to work together in a very collaborative way, but also to be proactive about those things um, that Ben talked about in terms of like 20, 30 years out, what is the state of your housing stock mm. um, and your potential for economic development by not leaving lead in the ground? So we need a strategy here to still deal with those vacant properties. You've got tens of thousands of vacant properties in Flint. And so my, my personal concern is that it sort of dooms a property that's going to be sold for $15,000 mm. 
$20,000 and gets missed over by this program and maybe doesn't get caught right away by efforts to um, comply with the updated lead and copper rule, uh, that, you know, people might pass that property by and not wanting to invest in it because the, the cost of replacing the pipe alone may be $5,000. Um, and so these are considerations people have when they think about locating in Flint. And we have had an exodus of people, understandably, leaving to protect their families. And that has had a ripple effect. And, you know, and we have now, um, and I, I know the numbers aren't official yet, I think, but um, with the 2020 census, we expect to be under the 100,000 population mark. And what that means is that we are in a different category as a city, and that affects our ability to get grants and um potentially representation in government. Um, hopefully that won't come, won't, there won't be a change there. But these are um, unintended consequences of this water crisis. Um, not to mention the fact that there's a lot of questions still about the water quality. Is it stable? These are my questions. Um, I would like to see more transparency. And before this closes, a very intentional and thoughtful strategy about the vacant um, lots. And, and I understand that there are constraints and you of course want to prioritize getting let out of those properties that are occupied. That that makes complete sense, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately we are tied, uh, it's, it's easy to just go to the 2017 legal settlement that uh, pushed for this program in the first place. And that settlement basically states that, uh, or part of the settlement states that you have to have had an active water line since 2017 to even qualify for the pipe replacement program. Hmm. Um, which hopefully that means is catching new people that may move into Flint. We've had some people move in too, who want to be part of the change and be part of this community. This beautiful, this really is a beautiful community, hmm. you know, despite all these challenges. But, um, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think we just want to be very, uh, very intentional. Sure. Well, my, my last question uh, is, you know, especially Ben and Mona, um, we've talked about the lead lines and but how they are right now. How how are the people? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've raised this point about still having questions and concerns, and that's all valid. But, uh, you know, the people have been through a tremendous amount. Um, how, how are the people of Flint? I think there's a fati- there's fatigue. <laughs> there's fatigue um, from, you know, the thing about Flint is that you've had people who have been active in, about making change here long before the water crisis. It really is, a, you know, Flint has been in transition, different transitions for many decades um, as GM pulled out and you know, you had just like this ripple effect with the tax base and then the population and investment and everything. Um, so people, you have people here who stay and have a very a fighting spirit and a caring spirit for each other. Um, and I think there's a sense here more than in any other community I've lived in that we have to take care of each other. So I think that that helps us be resilient. Although I think it, um, it can be frustrating to have to be resilient. <laughs> like, yeah. why, why can't things just be easier? <laughs> Um, I think that there are there are families who are are struggling, and when you add COVID on top of it, yeah. you have children with lead poison, you know, living with the effects of lead poisoning that are having some difficulties in school. And then you have to, for their own safety, um, move to virtual learning environments. And so there's these there's these challenges that people are living with right now. 
And um, and I'll just I'll just share this. Like I um, I got an autoimmune. I don't know if you can kind of see my arm. Mm-hmm. I got an autoimmune uh, disease that um, came came out of the water crisis. And I don't know if it's the water the water itself or the stress of it, but I have psoriasis, mm-hmm. and I got COVID in in November, and now I have this over like literally eighty percent of my body. Mm-hmm. And so um, and and but and but I, what I'm saying is that people are still living with these effects. You have people still dealing with the skin issues. Um, and, and it may be at a deeper level now, it's an autoimmune thing for some people. Um, but I think that we are still in a process of healing. We are still in a process of rebuilding trust in our governmental systems. Um, and we, we still need all those things that we needed five years ago around transparency and um, a willingness to uh, be open and, um, communicate with the, with the community and, um, do as much as possible so people can heal and feel a sense of normalcy again. Sure. And just to add a little bit onto that, if I may, um, I I mean, I think when when you look at Flint in comparative perspective, you might be inclined to say, well, you know, there are a lot of communities that have water issues that haven't gotten the same amount of attention and resources and so forth as as residents of Flint um, have gotten. And in the scheme of things, they're they're pretty lucky from that perspective and maybe ought to feel, you know, grateful or, or something. And and um, you know, on, again, you, you can you can see why people say that there are plenty of other communities that I'm sure deserve the same amount of attention and resources or or more. But you know, from the from the ground level here in Flint, when you talk about um, the issues that people are continuing to deal with, the the justice that hasn't been been done. Um, the, the harm that people have suffered, which goes way beyond lead. I mean, it, it has to be said, like Flint has been framed to the world as a lead and water crisis, but it was about much more than that. I mean, we had people die from Legionnaire's disease. And if you look at the, the charges that were just filed um, today, the, the criminal charges, a lot of them pertain to, to the deaths from Legionnaire's disease in particular. That's where the inv- involuntary manslaughter charges come from. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things to understand is that even if you could get every lead pipe out of the ground here in Flint, right, and you're just talking about, you know, water quality, people have, have other kinds of concerns about, you know, what, what they may be exposing themselves to in, in, um, with their water. Um, but then beyond that, you know, uh, uh, again, this was not only a water quality crisis for people. It was a crisis of water affordability as well. We still have people who can't pay their water bills, who are getting their water shut off, um, who are at risk of having liens put on their their homes for failure to pay. Um, But zooming out even more, I mean, this was a crisis of political institutions as well. Um, There are a lot of residents here who blame Michigan's emergency manager law for the crisis because we had people making decisions about water in Flint who were not elected, who were appointed to carry out an agenda um, that was determined by the state. And so, um, you know, what's happened at that level with reform? Uh, I mean, the answer is nothing, nothing. We have an emergency manager law on the books still that has not changed. So when you hear people from Flint saying that they're not taking us seriously, um, despite all of the 
energy and resources and so forth that have been invested. This is the kind of stuff that they're talking about. That's not just a product of trauma. It's not just that people are determined to be victims and have, you know, developed an entitled attitude or that they're, you know, they've, they're walking around with anti-science ideas and they're just not willing to accept that everything is fine now. There, there's a lot of complexity when you really dig into it in terms of what this crisis means to people, how it's affected people, and, and what it would ever mean to be over. It's not just a matter of lead service lines. Yeah. Well, Ben and Jared and Mona, I really appreciate all this perspective. I mean, I know there's so much to talk about, um, but I, I feel like you shared a lot today in, in this episode. I appreciate it a ton. Thank you very much. And thank you, Travis, for the opportunity to, to share a story as well. Thanks, Travis. Right. Thank you, Travis. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code WATERLOOP at highsierrashowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.